Welcome to the Cherry Hills Podcast. Today we pick back up in our study through the Gospel of Mark called The Way of Jesus. We trust that you will receive just what you need from the Lord today. Thank you for joining us. So uh, before we get into the text this morning, I feel like there's an elephant in the room that I need to address. There's some disunity uh, among us, and I feel like I'm the reason for that. Uh, last week, I mentioned that I thought Good and Plenty and Banana Laffy Taffy were the two worst candies uh, ever invented, and I've received a lot of heat from that this past week. So I'm hoping in a search for unity that we could all agree today that this actually, I was wrong, this actually is the worst candy ever invented. Yeah? Can I get an amen to that? All right, good. Carnival Peanuts. All right, today, guess what? We get to talk about taxes. Yay! Aren't you glad you came? I found it ironic and funny as I was preparing this week. Last week, we talked about God's judgment and death. And today, we're talking about taxes. And I couldn't help but think of Benjamin Franklin's famous quote, right? In this world, nothing is certain except death and taxes. Uh, But of course, the message today really isn't about taxes specifically. The message is really what it looks like for us as followers of Jesus to live under the rule and of authority of a government, a human government. Or if you're following, I'm putting it this way, here's the question, how do we live the way of Jesus while living under a government as followers of Jesus? Now, this is one of those questions that has been discussed and debated for 2,000 years, regardless of your political loyalties or your commitments. The question has become, like, should I as a Christian... As a follower of Jesus Christ, who is my king, obey the government that I find myself living under. And this question is probably easier for us today to answer because we live under a democracy. But think about when this question was being asked. The Christian people were living under a totalitarian government, right, who were persecuting them. This question was right in their face. Should we obey the government that is persecuting us? We are subjected to cruel dictatorship. Even today, let's just be honest, we're living in a free democracy, which is a great privilege. But are there times as followers of Jesus when we should violate what the government says? Or should we violate what scripture says in order to obey the government? And that's what we're talking about today as we continue our series, walking our way through the gospel of Mark called The Way of Jesus. If you haven't been with us in this series, we're simply spending time with Jesus, learning from Jesus, how we can live the way of Jesus as his followers today. And again, we want to talk about how we live the way of Jesus right here in the context that God has placed us in the authority not only of the United States, but of the state of Illinois as well. So if you haven't already, I'd love to encourage you to grab your Bible. If you brought it with you, you can turn it to Mark chapter 12, starting in verse 13 this morning. We're only looking at five verses together, but they're packed with some great stuff. If you didn't bring a Bible, we always have black Bibles in the seat underneath you there. Would love for you to grab one of those, and you can find this story on page 824 of those black Bibles. And we say this every week. I'm probably tired of saying it, but we know that there are people here who actually don't have their own copy of God's word. And if you would like that, we would love for you to take that black Bible home with you today as our gift. Now, just to set the context, this last four weeks, we've been in the middle of this section where Jesus is confronted by the religious leaders of his day. This is actually going to go on all the way through the end of chapter 12. He, they don't like what he's doing. And it started with him coming into Jerusalem and then triumphal entry. 
And then he goes into the temple and he basically says, this is a house full of robbers. And he cleanses the temple of everything that's happening here. And in the last couple of weeks, we've just seen these religious leaders, the Sanhedrin they're called, the, the upper uppers are confronting Jesus week after week with different issues in the way he is speaking. And today, we're going to see this trap that two different groups are going to try to set for Jesus. So let's pick it up in verse 13 together of Mark 12. Later, they sent some of the Pharisees and the Herodians to Jesus to catch him in his words. Now, just to pause here, these two groups, the Pharisees, we've heard a lot about them. Uh, if you've been with us through Mark, the Herodians, not so much. But these are strange partners to be coming to Jesus to confront him here. You see, the, the Pharisees is what I would maybe call the right-wing group of this day. That they were the law abiders. They didn't like what Jesus was teaching and this, how he was trying to challenge them in their religion. The Herodians were maybe more the left-wingers. They were the advocates of big government, so to speak. The Pharisees hated Jesus because they had been, he'd messed with their religious agenda. The Herodians hated Jesus because he was threatening their political advantage that they had had with Rome. They had married themselves to Rome, so they're the ones of all the religious groups that probably had the most power. Now, what's crazy is these two enemies are brought together by a common enemy. They're brought together to destroy Jesus. They both want to get rid of him. Kind of reminds me when the when Russia joined the Allied forces, right, in World War II. We didn't have much in common with them and where they were headed, but because of a greater enemy, we joined forces with them in order to destroy Germany. In the same way, right, they're like, okay, we've got a common enemy, even though we hate each other. Let's go get this guy. Jesus knows they're coming after him. Verse 14, we see their trap starting to be laid. They came to him and said, teacher, we know that you are a man of integrity. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are, but you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Right? What do we call this today? They're buttering him up. They're flattering him. They're, they're trying to get him like, oh, wow, that's really nice of you. What can I do for you guys, right? It reminds me of these two cartoons that I really have liked. Oh, I hope you can read those. Darling, you look so beautiful. I can hardly keep my eyes off my phone, right? And then this is my favorite one. Before we begin today, may I say that both my clients and I were astonished that your honor was not nominated for the Supreme Court. Buttering up, and that's what they're doing here, right? Look at the way they're talking to Jesus. Teacher, rabbi, a title of respect. We know that you are not swayed by other humans, that you are truthful in all that you say and do. Now, here's the question. Do they actually believe any of this? No, they're just buttering them up. But if you're following on your notes, the best part of this is even though their flattery is insincere, ironically, it's true. Everything they say about Jesus is true. They're trying to trap him, but as they do, they're describing perfectly who he is. From their lips comes truth, even though they are trying to destroy him. And now comes the question they ask. This is the trap they're getting Jesus to. It says on your notes, can we read it out loud together? Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? You're like, what is the trap here? I just got to tell you, this is a crafty question that they've come, to, come up with. It's simple, but it's brilliant. Is it lawful for us to pay Caesar's tax or not? 
Should we pay it or shouldn't we pay it? This demands a yes or no answer from Jesus. Now, I used to wonder why. You're probably wondering too, why exactly would this be a trap? Like what problem does Jesus have when it comes to answering this question? And to understand that, we have to understand the context of this question and how loaded this question or statement is in Jesus' day. The, the Greek word for tax is kenson, and we would translate that as a census. So he's talking about a census tax. And if you're following on your notes, this tax that they're talking about was what every person had to pay simply for existing. We hear the word census and we recognize that word, right? Every 10 years, our government does a census to count how many people there are in each city, each state, how the nation is growing, where it's growing. But just think about this. Every single year, you were required to pay this tax to the Roman rulers simply for existing under their government. The Jewish people hated this because it reminded them that they were under subjection to an outside rule. They hated it so much that in AD 6, a revolt was led by Judas the Galilean. You can read about, he's even mentioned in the book of Acts, who was violently put down by the Roman rule. And so here's the trap, if you still don't get it. If Jesus, if you're following, if Jesus says to pay the tax, he will be seen as a traitor. The people are going to reject him. Because they reject Rome ruling over them. However, on the other hand, if he has says not to pay the tax, he will be arrested by Rome. The Pharisees want the first option. The Herodians want the second one. Silence is not an option. The Pharisees want him to say, yes, pay the tax, because then they can turn the nation against him. The Herodians want him to say, no, don't pay the tax, and they can go immediately to their bed partners in Rome and get him arrested and go to trial, right? There's no way Jesus can escape this. He's trapped. He's in trouble. The next part of verse 15, Jesus says, but Jesus knew their hypocrisy. Why are you trying to trap me? Now, that word trap is the same word used earlier in Mark when Satan brings Jesus out to the desert in order to test him. Satan wants to destroy Jesus. He has evil intent. Jesus uses the same word for this question, for this situation that these religious leaders have put him under. And that brings us to one of the greatest statements in the Gospels, one of the greatest answers in the entire world. It starts with the rest of verse 15, which says, bring me a denarius and let me look at it. Now, here's the denarius. You can see it up on the screen. This is what this coin looks like. That is literally what every person had to pay simply for existing under the Roman government. Now, we probably don't know Latin today, so what it says on the first side with, with his head there is, son of the divine Augustus, literally the son of God. That is Caesar. You think they would like him being called the son of God? Probably not. On the other side, it says Pontifus Maximus, which means chief priest. So he's the son of God, and he is the chief priest of all the people. You could imagine the, blue, the Jews found this to be blasphemy. And they were required to give this to Caesar every single year, simply for being able to have the privilege of living under their rule. Now we come to the pinnacle of this encounter. Let's read verses 16 and 17 on our notes together out loud. It says, they brought the coin and he asked them, Whose image is this and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. 
Then Jesus said to them, give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. And they were amazed at him. Now, if they had microphones back then, this would be a mic drop. And again, maybe we're like, well, I don't totally get it. So let's unpack that. Jesus asked for denarius, the required tax. And then he asks, whose image is this? And then he says some of the most significant words in human history. I'm not joking. The impact on Western civilization starting even in, 4 AD, in 40, 400 AD is huge. He says, give back to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. God's. This never saw this coming. He ruins both of their positions here. If you're following by his reply, Jesus acknowledges the legitimacy of human government. He is no anarchist. God has ordained three institutions, the family, the government, and the church. The government has the right to ask for tax. And we have the responsibility living under that government to pay for the tax. It has the right to make laws. And we have the responsibility, as all citizens do, of obeying those laws. But on the other side, if you're following, he also maintains that our greater allegiance belongs to God. They think they have him trapped, but his answer causes them to walk away in amazement. He is able to uphold both things while putting greater allegiance to God. Now, I want to spend the rest of our time unpacking this statement. Other writers in the New Testament speak about the Christian's role under the government, specifically Paul and Peter, even though they were living under the emperor Nero at the time. Do you know about Nero? He's a lunatic. He persecuted Christians, but they write about our role as followers of Jesus, even under a lunatic like Nero. And the two most significant passages are in Romans 13 and in 1 Peter 2. So I'm going to read through these, and I want you just to be paying attention to what they're writing about our role, if you're a follower of Jesus, when it comes to government. And then we're going to take the rest of our morning, sort of unpack that, and ask some important questions. So starting with Romans 13, verse 1. Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted, and those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from fear of the one in authority? Then do what is right, and you will be commended. For the one in authority is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for rulers do not bear the sword for no reason." They are God's servants, agents of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Therefore, it is necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of possible punishment, but also as a matter of conscience. This is also why you pay taxes, for the authorities are God's servants who give their full time to governing. Give to everyone what you owe them. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor probably the most important passage in the Bible when it comes to this subject. Peter also brings this up, though, in his book. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. Live as free people, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. 
Live as God's slaves. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God. Honor the empire. Emperor. Whew. That's some pretty heavy stuff, and it's pretty straightforward and in our face, right? And the main idea in both of those texts, again, if you're on your notes, is that Christians have a duty to obey the government. Now, I'm going to expand on this in a few more minutes, but Jesus also said these words. Give back to God's God what is God's. I'm not going to be trapped by your yes or no question here. And so the brilliance comes when Jesus says, yes, obey Caesar. Give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar, but give back to God what belongs to God. And here's the key question. What belongs to God? You do. I do. We're told in Genesis 1.27 that all of us have been created in the image of God. Therefore, we all have value. We all have meaning. We all belong to him. If you're following as created in his image, We ultimately belong to him. So, do you see how brilliant Jesus is here? Give to God what is God's. Ultimately, you belong to God. So give yourself to me. Give yourself to him. Kent Hughes wrote this. I found this helpful. You can see it on the screen. The statement by our Lord was not only astounding the instant it was uttered, but is even today universally acclaimed to be the single most influential political statement ever made in the history of the world. With one simple maxim, Jesus put everything in proper perspective. He put Caesar in his place, and he placed God where he rightfully belongs in our lives as well. All the people could do was stand back and look on in amazement. So that's the text. That's the big idea. But because I need 35 minutes to fill, no, I'm kidding. I think there's a lot more nuance that we need to look into when it comes to these subjects, right? I think you're probably already asking questions of the verses that we've looked at. Questions like, what does it look like for me to obey the government? What does that actually mean in my everyday life? Questions like, are there ever times when the follower of Jesus should not obey the government? Questions like, are there ever times when God and government and my conscience will come into conflicts? And then ultimately, the biggest question is, What would it look like for me to really give myself to God? So let's tackle some of these. First of all, what does actual obedience to the government look like for you and me? Both the passage we just looked at and Romans 13 and 1 Peter 2, I think we can say the following things about what it means. You're worried about two pages on the notes, I know. But we're going to go quick through these, all right? First, we're called to live under the authority of our rulers. Again, we've been talking about this. And here's what I want to say. Yes, even pagan rulers. And yes, even rulers we disagree with. Now, a part of what this means, living under, in the world, under a government, means we will involve ourselves. We will engage ourselves in the political process. So if you are allowed to vote as a Christian, you should vote. Bringing your Christian convictions to the public arena. But whether or not our vote is the one that passes... Whether or not the person who is in office is the person we voted for, we are still to live under the authority of the government. Second, we're called to bless and invest in the place God has us. Think about Joseph in Egypt. Think about Daniel in Babylon. Think about Jesus himself here on earth. 
Even though all of them recognize that my citizenship is in heaven, I'm not really going to be here on earth forever. They invested into the place that God had put them. This means followers of Jesus, we're just don't think about, oh, one day I'll live in heaven. Forget this. May it go to hell. No, he says, I want you to prosper the cities that I've placed you in. I want you to bless them. I want you to look at some of the issues that are harming them, problems in the city. I want you to seek reconciliation and, and restoration using the gifts that God has given you. Don't just wait for heaven. Bring the kingdom of God right here, right now in the place that he has put you. There's a wonderful book uh, about this. I couldn't recommend more. It's called Kingdom Calling. God has given every one of us gifts, right? Spiritual gifts, passions. And this book really helps bring that together in a way that helps us see we don't just use that for us and no one else. We are to be blessing the community God has placed us. Third, we will obey the state, but only worship God. This might seem like a duh thing, but man, have you heard of this thing called Christian nationalism? It's this marriage of the country with Christianity. And sometimes I feel like this can become an idol. As if those are the same things, right? No, we are to obey the state, love the state, encourage the state, bless the state, invest in the state. And when I say state, I'm not just talking about Illinois, right? I'm talking about the whole thing. But we are never to worship the state. That belongs to Jesus alone. We do not worship our country. We worship Jesus alone. Fourth, we believe all leaders are established by and come from God. Paul said it like six times in Romans 13. For example, there is no authority except which God has established. I hate this one. It's always been a mystery to me. Like really? This person, this political leader has been established by you? This was your desire. This was your will. This makes no sense to me. But somehow, some way, God in his sovereignty allows certain people to reign and rule. Even people we completely disagree with. But we must still show them respect. We must still say, yes, God has placed them in this position. There is no doubt the conduct of many politicians No doubt many of the policies that get put in place challenge our respect, rightfully so. But even then, while we can disagree with them, here's the key, we don't disrespect the person. There is a clear difference between disagreeing with policies, disagreeing with politicians and their stances, than then ripping those people apart to shreds. And I would just say, when I look at Facebook and Twitter and see what many followers of Jesus write, they have passed that line. We used to say the old phrase, you've probably heard this, hate the sin, love the sinner. Hate the policies. But don't cross the line to then throwing these people under under the bus. Respect the people that God has put in place. Again, respect doesn't mean I have to agree with them. It simply means I'm not going to slander them. I'm not going to gossip about them. I'm not going to post mean things about them and the person that they are. I will invest. I will engage in public discourse about the things that I think are wrong and the things that I think are right. But I won't do that to a person that God has apparently put into that position. 
Fifth, we will pay, we will pay all taxes, recognizing the state's right to do so. Yay. Paul said it this way in Romans 13, this is why you pay taxes, for the authorities are God's servants who give their full-time governing. This obviously means, as believers, we don't cheat on our taxes. It reminds me of a story that Jeff used to share of one conscience-stricken taxpayer who wrote the IRS, Dear sir, my conscience bothered me. Here is the $175 which I owe in back taxes. P.S. If my conscience still bothers me, I'll send the rest. (laughs) That is not to be our attitude toward the government. Finally, we will pray regularly for those who rule over us. Paul says it this way in 1 Timothy chapter 2. I urge then, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is something I need to get better at. How about you? I mean, I... I'm better at it when there are people in positions that I agree with. But when it comes to people I disagree with, I stop doing that. But friends, we are called as believers to pray for all those that God has put in authority over us. That's how we as Christians live in this world under the the political powers that God has placed us under. Now, the question, second question becomes, are there ever times when we don't obey the government? And in my opinion, there are two clear times in scripture when that happens. First of all, we will not obey when asked to violate a command of God. The Bible has a lot of examples of this. You remember the midwives in Egypt who were told to kill every newborn son. They refused to do that. You remember the refusal of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to bow down to an idol. You remember Daniel, who was told you cannot pray to any other God except for this God, and he refused to do so. And then in Acts, we see the apostles preaching the gospel everywhere throughout the city, and they're told they must stop or they will be arrested in their responses. In Acts 5, 29, Peter and the other apostles replied, we must obey God rather than human beings. These are the times. When we are asked as followers of Jesus to disobey a clear command in God's word that our allegiance to God is over our allegiance to the place God has us. The second time, we will not obey when it goes against our Christian conscience. Now this one is a little bit more gray. So what does that mean? Well, it could mean if your employer is asking you to engage in a moral entertainment of some sort. Or it could mean that you're working in an an institution that is performing abortions. Or you don't want to participate in war because your conscience tells you that is not something I could do. What does your conscience say about some of the things that you're being asked to do? The sad reality, like for a while, I I don't think this was a big issue for us. But today, it's becoming a bigger and bigger issue. I think about people working in the healthcare industry right now. I think about some of you state workers right now. I think about the teachers who are asked to teach things that doesn't agree with their conscience. I've had to meet with a number of people just in this last six months who are told by the state, please sign that you agree with this when they don't agree with it. What do you do in those situations? You listen to your conscience. 
What does God's word tell me about this? Can I or can I not sign this? And here's the hard reality. Sometimes that will mean a huge cost. A huge cost. But the overall point is, give to Caesars what is Caesar. And besides the two exceptions I just mentioned there, we are called as followers of Jesus to profound obedience to the government. Christians are to be a law-abiding people who care for the place that God has us and pray for the people that God has placed over us to rule us here on earth. Now, more importantly now, let's close with the most important thing. Give to God what is God's. If you're following on your note, as Christians, this phrase means God claims total ownership of our lives. Now, again, I want to dig a little into the brilliance of Jesus' response here, right? I want you to think of it this, like this. The coin belonged to Caesars because it bared his image on it. We belong to God because we bear God's image on us. Have any of you ever visited the Mint in Washington, D.C. and watched money being made? Nobody. You should. It's kind of cool. You get to see these imprints being placed onto the dollar bills or onto the coins. They just run through this big machine, right? All these imprints being minted, this money being minted with the image of George Washington or Abraham Lincoln or Adams, you name it. You just get to see this made. And in a similar way, if you're here today, I want you to know that the moment you received Christ, you were minted in his image. This is the work that the Holy Spirit does for every believer. If you're following We've been minted and sealed as his. Look at how Paul puts it in Ephesians 1, 13 through 14. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you went through the mint and you were marked with him in a seal. The promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. This is a powerful picture that I hope you understand. The moment you put your faith in Jesus Christ, boom, you're mine. Guarantee. I will never leave you nor forsake you. You belong to me. I think God might have like a whole list of coins up on his wall in heaven. And there's me. And there's you, and there's all of us who follow Jesus. You now belong fully to me. I have sealed that promise in the Holy Spirit of God. And the beautiful thing is, if you're following, as we grow in Jesus, we transform more into his image. If you give yourself to him, you will become more and more, not like yourself, but like him. Your coin, so to speak, will change to look more like Jesus. We will be transformed. That is how we give back to God what is God's. We give ourselves fully to him so that he can do the work of transformation in our lives. Now, friends, I just want to, as we close, bring this back to the main idea, what I think this text is about, our allegiance. We're to show allegiance to our country, our state, whatever. We're to show allegiance to God. One is bigger than the other. Some of you know I was not born in the United States. I became a citizen actually here in Springfield. I went through a whole uh, thing down at the state, old state capitol. It was a very, very cool experience. And one of the things you have to do when you become a citizen is say the Pledge of Allegiance, right? I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America. 
And as I'm saying that, I'm kind of thinking about, like, this is a big deal. The word allegiance means to make a commitment or say I am going to be loyal to this superior thing than me. And I had no problem saying that, right? I am going to make a commitment under the belief that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among them are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. I can make an allegiance to a country that fights for the freedom of all of the people that find themselves in it. But, but, our greater allegiance belongs to Jesus, always. I was struck by these words by Mark Deaver. You can read them on the screen with me. The Christian has only one God, Jesus. The Christian longs for only one kingdom, the kingdom of God. The Christian has only one sword, the word of God. So as a devoted follower of Jesus, I will say yes to obeying the government and paying taxes to Caesar, but I will say no to disobeying the word of God and worshiping a man or institution. Independence Day for the Christian is not marked by a flag. No, our Independence Day is Easter, marked by a cross and an empty tomb. So give to America's what it is America's, but give to God what is God's. And what that amounts to is everything. He gets it all. That's why we say around here, like if you want to be a part of our church, then you're signing up for we want to see every generation giving themselves fully to the way of Jesus and his mission. I pledge allegiance to Jesus Christ, who is the king above all kings, the Lord above all lords, and who deserves my allegiance above all else in this world. I'm not just going to talk about country right now. He deserves my allegiance above my spouse, above my kids, above my 401k, above my employer. He deserves my allegiance above my sports team. That's hard for me. Not really. You get the idea here though, right? We can put allegiance to all these different things, but ultimately the question for us, if you're following there, have I placed my allegiance to Christ above everything else? Have I placed my allegiance to Christ above everything else? Let's take some time now as we do each week. We don't wanna just be hearers of the word, we wanna be doers of the word. So that very same Holy Spirit that promises and seals you as one of God's, is present with us, with you. And so we're just gonna take some time now to pray in silence. Jesus, where is my allegiance? Where is my allegiance? Is there something keeping me from giving myself fully to you? Or maybe this is a time of confession. I've placed things above you, Lord. Or I've bad-mouthed politicians. I have not respected them. Use this time however you feel fit as you prepare yourself to receive the gift of communion. Thanks for joining us today. If you would like more information about our church, visit our website or find us on Facebook. Have a great day.